Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm really happy to have you with us. Um, It's Wednesday, which means that uh, my partner from the AJC on the show today is political reporter Greg Bluestein. Also, we should point out, a newly minted analyst for NBC News and its various platforms. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing great. How are you today, Bill? I'm fine. I'm really glad uh, that you're here with us today. Is NBC working you hard? Are you like, uh, are they asking you to be on all the time, given how important Georgia is these days in politics? It's been very busy. It's been, um, geez, it's been three times already this this past week. So uh, this past four or five days. So it's been good. <laughs> I, you know, Greg, I know from the times that I've done stuff like CNN or or. or PBS, whatever, NewsHour, uh, people from all over the country call you up and say, gee, I just saw you on the news. It's it's a lovely little personal thing, right? <laughs> yeah, and there's always people who have my last name in other parts of the state, how, as in the nation, who say, how are we related? And so it's always a family tree, sort of Jewish geography. <laughs> Uh, Jewish geography. We're also joined today by uh, Professor Emeritus, Emory University, Alan Abramowitz, um, Alan, uh, you look, uh, we see each other, all of us, on WebEx mm-hmm. as we do the shows. You're looking very relaxed, but you are teaching a course, despite the fact you're essentially uh, retired. You're teaching a, a course this semester and another one next semester, right? That's right. I'm teaching uh, a freshman seminar this semester on the midterm elections, and I'm teaching a senior seminar in the fall semester also on the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. Well. Plenty to talk about, and I assume mm-hmm. the curriculum for that course must change almost on a daily basis in the same way that the topics we plan to mm-hmm. discuss on this show change from hour to mm-hmm. hour, right? Mm-hmm. We, we do have to you know, keep up with uh, what's going on in the news, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're joined for the first time, and I'm very glad to welcome Raul Bali, who is a political reporter for WABE. And uh, we should point out, Raul, in introducing you to our audience, you're no newcomer to covering Georgia politics. I mean, you've been doing this for at least two decades that I'm aware of. You've covered the state capitol. You've covered local uh, politics in Atlanta. Um, we're really glad to have you with us today. Thanks a lot for joining us. Great to be on, Bill. All right, let's let's get right to it. Um, I want to start with the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court decision uh, the other day on an Alabama redistricting case. And and Greg, let me just set the stage very briefly, and then you weigh in, and we'll get everybody involved in this conversation. Um, a voting rights group had challenged Alabama's congressional lines drawn in, in, in 20, after the 2020 census. Um, they said that black voters were uh, having their votes diluted. They had one congressional district as a result of redrawing the lines when they, in fact, should have two. 
a district court, three judges, uh, two of whom were appointed by Donald Trump, agreed that the lines were drawn incorrectly and said, in fact, that Alabama had to go back and create two majority African-American districts. Okay, fine. That case then went to the United States Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decided that, in fact, they would stay the district court's rule. In other words, they would not um, approve Alabama having to draw a second majority black district in time for the 2022 election. In fact, the justification, they said, was that it was too close to the election. It could confuse voters. So, Greg, I'll turn it over to you. But add to this, the reason this is of significance in Georgia is because uh, District Court Judge Steve Jones here, who's hearing a case on redrawing the lines in Georgia because of a dilution of black votes, according to the plaintiffs, has said he's not sure he can continue this case because of what the Supreme Court did on Alabama. So, Greg, I apologize for that long introduction, but I think it sets us up for a conversation. It does, because the Supreme Court's ruling cited something called the Purcell Principle. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's the idea that courts shouldn't change election rules soon before an election because it could confuse voters and, and cause all sorts of problems with the administration of the vote. Um, well, you know, Alabama's primary is the same day as Georgia's. It's May 24th. And so that is why there was a hearing, sort of an emergency hearing um, this week from plaintiffs challenging um, the, uh, the, the Georgia redistricting. Uh, essentially saying that, hey, if the court is raising the same concerns about Alabama, then how could Georgia redraw and, and change its election lines in time for the May 24th primary? Um, so, Alan, uh, this becomes, of course, significant both for the state of Alabama and potentially for the state of Georgia, although many people feel this, <laughs> the, that the lines here will hold. Um, because uh, what's we are talking now about... Uh, lines that will be used to elect members of Congress for the 2023 uh, term. And we know that the balance of power is up for grabs. Uh, so this is particularly significant right now, Alan. It's very significant. Um, and what the court decided here were the, fi the five conservative, most conservative uh, members of the court ruled here um, in, in this case that they took on an emergency basis essentially that uh, um, they did not want to uh, uh, put those districts on hold in Alabama um, and, and force them to go back and redraw the lines, uh, even though there's still three months or so left until the primary election. So there's actually plenty of time. This argument that that's too close to the, to the time of the election seems to me very uh, questionable here. Um, but it has important implications for Georgia because you have the same issues here. Um, re regarding minority representation, regarding uh, whether another minority, majority minority district could be drawn, dilution of black votes. Uh, and I think what the judge here is saying is, look, um, the majority clearly indicated that they're not going to uh, allow this sort of ru a rule, ruling to stand. And, and so what's the point of, of, of moving ahead with this case in Georgia? So I think it's very unlikely that we're going to see this case move forward in Georgia. Well, we'll talk about what the basis of the Georgia lawsuit is in just a moment. But, um, but Alan, let me get your response to uh, something that Linda Greenhouse, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, analyst of the Supreme Court for The New York Times, said about this. She said, mm -hmm. quote, this is no mere squabble over procedure. 
What happened Monday night was a raw power play by a runaway majority that seems to recognize no stopping point. It bears emphasizing that the majority's agenda of cutting back on the scope of the Voting Rights Act is Chief Roberts' agenda, too. He made that abundantly clear in the past and suggested it in a kind of code with his bland observation that the court's Voting Rights Act precedents have engendered considerable disagreement and uncertainty regarding the nature and contours of a voting dilution claim. So the reason I bring that up are twofold. Number one, the Supreme Court has said they will hear the Alabama court's case in their fall term, but too late for the election in 2022, too late for having a second district in uh, Alabama and maybe a change in lines here. But it's important also, Alan, because for Judge Roberts to have joined with those who disagreed with the court stay is really significant since he has been one of the leaders in undermining voting rights uh, law in the past. That's right. That's right. So I think what, what um, Justice Roberts is saying here is not necessarily that he uh, uh, agreed with the idea that uh, that there should be a second uh, majority African-American district in Alabama, uh, but rather that the decision made by the lower court was made properly uh, uh, and following all the, all the rules and guidelines, and, and there was no reason, therefore, for the, for, the, for the court to decide as it did to put that on hold. It could have waited uh, to be heard, for that argument to be heard. So it, what we're seeing here is that there are five justices who are ready and willing right now to throw out any, uh, any attempt to draw new districts uh, based based on Section Two of the Voting Rights Act, and it really, as Linda Greenhouse pointed out, I mean the, 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 that those five justices and, re, and really potentially six, when you count Roberts, have Section Two right in their crosshairs right now. Well, we've already seen the court move to uh, essentially gut uh, Section Five of the Voting Rights Act uh, with the Shelby decision, and and now we're seeing that the court appears to be ready to gut Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. Um, which makes the uh, inability of the Democrats to pass the uh, uh, new voting rights legislation um, in, in Congress uh, because of two Democrats in the Senate unwilling to throw out the filibuster or override it, uh, all, all the more significant. So uh, just so we remind people, Section 5 was uh, uh, decided in the Shelby case, and of course that was pre-clearance. That was right. states like Georgia, which had a history of discriminating against black voters, used to have to have any changes in voting uh, laws uh, approved by the Department of Justice. Uh, the court said in Shelby that was no longer the case. It would no longer apply because the states had shown they no longer were discriminating. Section 2 has already been undermined to an extent because in a recent ruling, the courts made it a little harder to uh, object to uh, to how lines are, are drawn. We won't go into that in great detail, mm-hmm. but Greg, let's talk about it in terms of the Georgia case right now. Uh, one of the keys to the Georgia case that the litigants say is of concern is the redrawing or, or the shifting of lines between the six, what was Democrat Lucy McBath's district and the 13th, which is held, of course, by David Scott, two Democrats. The redrawn maps um, move African-American voters largely out of the 6th, bring them down to the 13th, make the 6th more likely to be won by a Republican, um, concentrate black voters in a district already uh, in the hands of Democrats. And so there's a claim in this case here in Steve Jones' court that this is diluting the black vote. Greg? 
Exactly. And it's, it's diluting the African-American vote. It changed the sixth district so much that the African-American incumbent congressman, Lisa McBath, is running in the seventh district instead, which was drawn for a Democrat to win. This new sixth district um, stretches all the way to Dawson County. It stretches closer to the Tennessee border than it does to the city of Atlanta, um, which is where you know, it was kind of clustered around uh, previously. And in the process, um, it, it changes the 13th district. There's a separate part of this um, lawsuit as well that, that affects the second district, um, which is a Democratic incumbent there, Sanford Bishop. Um, it's still drawn for him. To, it still favors Sanford Bishop, but it also dilutes African-American voting power there as well. So the, there's there's two main districts um, where this lawsuit is, is targeting. Um, and again, as you mentioned, there is a huge question about whether or not this case can go forward right now because uh, it's drawn for Republicans to pick up at least one seat, maybe even two. Um, Democrats hold this as their last sort of effort at, at, at halting the redistricting. It's been signed into the law by Governor Kemp. Uh, it was approved by majority Republican legislation over Democratic opposition. But um, if, this, if these lawsuits fail, uh, there's no other real recourse. Raul, the um, the line that voting rights advocates often use, it's become almost a cliche, is it's the voters who should choose their representatives. Representatives should not choose their voters in talking about gerrymandering. Um, you know, but what happens in a district like the 6th, where you've had a lot of African-American voters, is the district changes and suddenly uh, their representation goes to people who may have no common interest with them whatsoever. That can happen in any number of districts, regardless of whether you're white, African-American. Uh, it, it, you can be drawn into a district that is not represented by somebody who shares any of your views that was the first thing when the when this congressional map came out the the congressional map that ended up being approved the first thing i noticed was southwest cobb and that there were some people who went from you know having you know david scott or possibly uh barry laddermilk as a representative to marjorie taylor green there were some some um, voters over in that area who were completely surprised by that and I do want to mention one other date. I know we're, we're mentioning the May primary date, but we also should mention when qualifying is. Qualifying is the first week of May. Mm. Now, obviously, that can be pushed back, but that's March. another date that I've heard a couple of times that the Capitol saying, yeah, March. Saying, you mean we, March. I'm sorry, March, yes. Uh, the that's first okay. week of March, I've heard a couple of we say, we need to get our stuff done by the first week of March, too. Yeah. Um, if, Alan, I don't think there's any question that election offices will have to move would have to move quickly if these lines were redrawn. There's mm. that's certainly true. I mean, we talked a lot on this show uh, last year about the fact that because the census data was coming quite late and districts were going to be drawn late in Georgia and across the country, that it was going to put a, a, a it was going to put some pressure on people deciding where they were going to run <clears throat> since their <throat> lines wouldn't be drawn until very very late in the year. So that's certainly true here, but as you point out, uh, that doesn't mean it can't be done. That's right. Um, it definitely can be done. Um, I mean, we've seen that the legislature is capable of moving very quickly when it has to uh, on something when they're under the gun. So I think that potentially they, they could have come up with new lines, um, but it, it appears that that is very unlikely to happen, that they're going to be move forward with, with the lines as, as they were drawn, which means that um, the Republicans are almost certain to gain uh, one seat 
in, in the congressional delegation and, and potentially it's another. I mean, the Sanford Bishop District um, probably will remain in Democratic hands, especially with Sanford Bishop running again. But, you know, potentially that that is one that could flip if there's a Republican, a strong Republican tied in the election. Uh, a final note on this, and let's move on then, Greg. Uh, there are some the voting rights folks who say that uh, Governor Kemp waited until day 38 after the session. He has 40 days to sign or, or allow bills to go into law. He waited till day 38 to sign this bill, which meant that uh, no legal case could move forward until then. Now, whether that was intentional or not, I, I don't know. We'd have to read his mind to understand that, Greg. Oh, no. Uh, no, that was strategic, right? I mean, that was it was it was very oh, well okay. known that a lawsuit would come the moment he signed the, the legislation. He could have signed it, right? He could have signed it day one. Uh, but but they, they, they kind of waited that out um, for, for, for legal reasons, right? Because it did it did uh, delay the clock ticking uh, on all these lawsuits by a few weeks. OK, thank right. you. Thank you. I was not aware of that. I'm glad you brought that up. All right, um, Greg, let's talk about campaigns. Uh, as they unfold around us, um, you, uh, you at the AJC, and you, I think specifically, have reported we've got new fundraising totals from uh, the campaigns, and uh, you pointed out that uh, the two top Democrats on uh, in the race for for next year, Stacey Abrams, Raphael Warnock, have amassed huge war chests compared to the Republicans running in those offices. I think. You pointed out that that Abrams raised what nine point two million dollars in just the past two months. Is that right? That is exactly right. She raised nine point two million dollars in just two months. Uh, she has uh, more than seven million dollars in her war chest. Governor Kemp still has an advantage in terms of cash because he's the incumbent governor. Uh, but in that same in a, in a seven month span, Governor Kemp raised about seven million dollars. So that shows you that. Stacey Abrams outraised the sitting governor of the state of Georgia by $2 million in five last months. Um, and and yeah. I should note, too, that both of them outraised David Perdue, who only raised about $1.1 million. Not a very good fundraising quarter for a fundraising show for David Perdue. He also had about two months. He, he, he got in just a few days after Stacey Abrams got in, so a limited time frame. But um, a, a cause for concern for his supporters was the lack of fundraising. Uh, Raul, we should also point out that Raphael Warnock, who raised $9.8 million in the last three months of 2021, uh, because of that figure, became the top Senate fundraiser uh, for the second quarter in a row. So how does um, we we know that when there is a winner in the Republican primaries in both the gubernatorial and the Senate race money is going to continue pouring in in big in big uh, uh, buckets. But in, in the meantime, how significant is the advantage that they've got right now uh, in terms of the last quarter or so? I think the reason the advantage is important is because those candidates for governor and for Senate on the Republican side, they're spending money now, you know. Herschel and Gary, uh, Gary Black and Herschel Walker are spending money now. David Perdue and Brian Kemp are spending money now. While really, Stacey Abrams and, and Raphael Warnock can, can kind of, you know, they, they don't have to spend a ton of cash, but they can spend it. Um, but you're right. In the end, I think whoever the final candidates are, they're going to have the money they need to run against each other. And it's going to be very difficult for you and me to watch television or to use 
uh, our iPads without seeing <laughs> seeing ad after ad <laughs> by the middle of summer. That's a, that is exactly that is exactly right. Uh, we are going to be inundated with ads because Georgia, it once again, is going to be ground zero in the battle for control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, but the Georgia governor's race is also going to get a lot of national attention. But I think what's really most significant here, and what these not what these fundraising numbers reflect, is the fact that both Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock have no opposition, no significant opposition in their own party. Um, so they can focus entirely on the general election, and they can raise money. They can they can, you know, spend relatively little for the next uh, few months uh, until the general election campaign gets underway, and um, they're not going to have any difficulty unifying their party. On the other side, uh, particularly in the governor's race, of course, we're seeing what potentially a very divisive primary uh, between David Perdue and Brian Kemp. Uh, now, Herschel Walker seems to have a very big advantage and lead on, uh, in the Senate race, but you know, he's still facing some, some opposition. I think the interesting thing is that David Perdue fundraising numbers is that it's, it's consistent with something we're seeing around the country, which is that a number of these Trump-backed Republican candidates are struggling. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not um, uh, Trump's uh, support uh, and is, is not necessarily uh, uh, giving them a clear path to their party's nomination. They're facing significant opposition uh, from more established, uh, you know, conservatives, not, uh, sort of non-Trump conservatives in the Republican Party. And there are other, other things that are happening that show that Trump's hold on the Republican Party in general <clears throat> It may, may be weakening somewhat. It's still, it's still strong, but maybe not as strong as it was a few months ago. And, Bill, we'll really start to see that, whether or not that's true in May in Georgia. The AJC poll out last month suggested that Trump's hold was starting to weaken, but we'll see. Um, it's still about 40 percent of Republicans said they're more likely to vote for a Trump-backed um, candidate in, in, in a primary in, in, in Georgia um, than not. But, you know, uh, I'll, I'll add to what Professor said, with the exception of Herschel Walker, who um, who is you know a Trump-backed candidate who's who's thriving at least now in the polls and fundraising. He raised more money than any other Republican Senate challenger in in the last quarter for the second quarter in a row. So he's had um, he's had a very strong fundraising numbers so far. Um, but that uh, that speaks to just how amazing <laughs> Senator Warnock's fundraising is that he almost doubled them. Mm -hmm in that quarter and has $23 million in the bank and they're already spending. Um, you know, just this week they came out with the first ad, put significant money behind it, almost $800,000. And he's got that money to spend. So he can go on air very early in a significant way, much earlier than, than these other challengers. And, 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 and you know, same Stacey Abrams, she can go on air as well uh, very soon if she needs to. As well. And when you're talking about a test, of the former president, former President Trump. The 10th Congressional may be one of those really interesting tests. Uh, for those who don't know, I used, to, I used to cover the 10th Congressional for four years, and with Vernon Jones jumping into that race, and then this morning Vernon Jones getting the endorsement of the former president officially, uh, you know, it's going to be really interesting to watch how that race develops. You have a front runner in Mike, Mike Collins, who's son of Matt Collins, who pushed Jody Heist to a runoff back in 2014. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that dynamic works because 
in terms of any possible voter base that, that, that Vernon Jones may have there, maybe some voters in Newton County, maybe some voters in Henry County in the new tent, uh, maybe some voters in Greene County because he had made a number of stops there for his governor's run. But that's going to be interesting. There is a strong pro-Trump base in the Lake Oconee, Lake Sinclair area. Are those folks going to turn and vote for Mike Collins, who, who they know, or are they going to vote for the Trump-backed candidate? That's a race I'm really going to be watching. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, and, and uh, we we're going to talk a little bit more about that race in just a couple minutes because um, uh, we want to talk about Vernon Jones in a second or two. But, hey, Greg Bluestein, Trump has now got a uh, – he's raised, what, $140 million? I don't know the exact number. Way over $100 million. Uh, is he starting to dole money out to these candidates he's backing or not? W- wouldn't Purdue be in line to get a hefty sum of money from the Trump war chest? Yeah, not that we've seen so far, and you'd think that <laughs> given the amount of attention that Trump has focused on Georgia, the David Purdue needs that, needs that cash right now. And, you know, Raul just mentioned Vernon Jones. This is how, this is how important the focus of, of, of Trump is on Georgia, is that the former president, um, it was a condition of Vernon Jones backing out of the governor's race that he had get endorsed for the 10th district. So basically, the president... Promised Vernon Jones, former president promised Vernon Jones he would endorse him in the 10th district if he got out of the governor's race because he wants to clear the field for David Perdue. So that just shows you the focus he has on Georgia right now. So, um, all right, uh, the, it's going to be fascinating, Raul. I'm really interested. Watching Vernon Jones in the 10th congressional district is just, uh, Raul, going to be really interesting. I mean, of course, we know that this is a guy who was a long, long time Democrat, served in the legislature as a Democrat, served as uh, two terms as CEO of DeKalb County as a Democrat. Uh, he's run. He ran virtually every race he was in as a Democrat and uh, uh, switched to becoming a, a strong ally of Donald Trump when Trump uh, was running for president. So how he's going to uh, deal with uh, voters out there in that district is going to be interesting to watch, Raul. And, and you know what? Mike Collins, who, again, is the front runner in that race, he had an ad ready to go, and 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 it is it it goes after his voting record, goes after past accusations that that you and I have covered involving Vernon that, that date back to the nineties. Um, you know, they, the, the Collins people even shared a test poll of Vernon that that showed Vernon in single digits in that race. So Vernon Vernon Jones is going to have a lot of questions to answer to voters, but. Again, when you've seen such a strong influx of, of Trump supporters, like, for example, in Greene County, okay, a, a, a very Republican county, but there's now a distinctly uh, Trump group that's come into that, into that party. And in other counties, that those people are Trump supporters first before they're Republican supporters. So how do those voters vote, you know? Are they going to be voting on Trump or are they going to be voting on the fact that, you know, Mike Collins has been a longtime Republican and would have supported the heartbeat bill, for example, unlike Vernon Jones, who voted against it? I got to get to a break. But uh, Alan Abramowitz, before I do, I just got a, a note from a listener who messaged me to say, hey, uh, you pointed out, Professor Abramowitz, that 
uh, Trump isn't uh, the Trump back candidates are not necessarily gaining traction all over the country. And he right. says that proves the liberal media is wrong when it says Trump voters can't think for themselves. And I just thought <laughs> we should share uh, his point of view on that. We got to pause for a message. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Political Rewind, WAB's Raul Bali, Greg Bluestein at the AJC, and uh, Emory University Emeritus Professor Alan Abramowitz join us today. Let's take a couple more minutes on the uh, Republican governor's race. Greg, I'd like to do that because um, when the Kemp campaign saw the uh, fundraising figures for David Perdue, less than a million dollars, um, not surprisingly, they called for him to get out of the race. Here's the quote that you have in your article uh, for, in the AJC today. Quote, the numbers are crystal clear. David Perdue does not have the resources to win this primary, but he does have the ability to elect Stacey Abrams as our next governor. A brutal primary where our campaign is forced to engage significant resources is Stacey Abrams' surest path to uh, victory. I would guess that David Perdue is not going to jump out. He responded to to that uh, uh, saying they're very proud of the 12,000 donations they got from unique individuals. You got it. And I went up to Cartersville with the, with the former Senator yesterday and asked him about his fundraising numbers. And he said, if you, people think I'm going to drop out of the race, they don't know how to spell my last name. So certainly he's He's not going anywhere anytime soon, um, but his fundraising numbers do raise a lot of questions, right? He, he's, he raised about $1.1 million. He has less than a million dollars in the bank, and he's not some unknown, unproven candidate. This is, the, this is one of the senators who was part of that record-smashing fundraising of the last cycle, um, raising tens of millions of dollars. He has an extensive donor list. Um, he has you know, raised enough money to still have about $4 million in the bank from his Senate bid. Um, you know, it's four times more than he has in the bank right now for his new gubernatorial bid. So, you know, he, he had a, he, other good things happened this week. He had he got Vernon Jones to drop out of the race, which clears the field for him. Um, he his camp won a partial court ruling against Governor Kemp when it comes to using um, money from a from a leadership committee that allows you to raise unlimited cash. But this was not a good um, <laughs> a good moment for yeah. for the former senator, and, and it really does. Uh, question whether or not he has the financial wherewithal to continue running. But Raul, you really can't argue with the camp campaign's uh, statement in the sense that a contested Republican primary for governor does uh, nobody favors more than it does Stacey Abrams. Whether you want Purdue or Kemp to emerge, the primary makes life much tougher for the Republican in the general election campaign, Raul. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, and- and, and kind of one of the, the senses you get from that is when we heard from the Stacey Abrams campaign that, you know what, we're going to we'll start doing a lot more events in the spring. Well, the reason they can is because they're watching the two Republicans fight. I think she was asked about it uh, on one of the late night shows. And I think her, her reference was, you know, why get involved in a fight between two elephants? I think that was the I'm doing that right off the top of my head. But she's right. Why get involved in this fight? Um and and she gets time, you know, she gets time to wait. I think the one good thing, Greg is right, by getting Vernon out of the race, you at least at least avoid a runoff, okay? That would have costed another month going from the May primary to what have been mm-hmm. the June runoff. But, yes, you're using resources, 
time and money to focus on each other instead of the likely candidate Stacey Abrams. And, and I, th I think overall what we're seeing here, uh, particularly with these fundraising numbers, is that you know, it's, it's tough to run against an incumbent governor. Um, and it's particularly tough to run against an incumbent governor in the, in the, in the same party as the incumbent governor. Um, that I think a lot of Republican donors are probably sitting back and uh, thinking that um, you know they don't they don't want to risk alienating the incumbent governor who may be around uh, for another four years if he's reelected. Um, so you know I'm not I'm not surprised that that David Perdue is struggling to, to raise money. Um, getting Vernon Jones out of the race is marginally helpful to him. Uh, I think, but uh, I still think he's got an, an uphill battle here uh, against the, the incumbent. Um, uh, Greg, uh, uh, you're welcome to weigh in on that if you want, uh, and, but I, I'm glad to move forward. Uh, so tell me what you want. You got something you want yeah. to close this off on that conversation yeah, with? Yeah, Abram said, uh, when elephants fight, stay off the grass. And, and to the <laughs> professor's point, um, you know, Part of the issue for David Perdue is also the, the, his, his lack of in-state fundraising. About, only about a third of the money he raised was from the state of Georgia, whereas, by contrast, Governor Kemp raised 90% plus from, of the itemized donations from in the state. So, so what the professor was saying, um, you know, a lot of Georgians are siding, and especially those with special interests are siding with governor because they don't want to upset an incumbent. He's using the powers of his incumbency in a very effective way. Um, okay. Uh, the reason I asked you if you wanted to make a comment or if I could move on is I do have a question about your trip with Purdue up to uh, northwest Georgia. Uh, it feels as if uh, he is running a different campaign. He learned some lessons from the campaign that he ran for in, in, in the Senate uh, when he basically closed himself off, didn't talk to reporters, um, didn't make many public appearances. He went through a COVID uh, quarantine, of course. Is he running a different campaign entirely this time? He is, but by necessity. I mean, I love to say it's, it's chalked up to his, uh, to his wanting to be transparent and realizing the error of his ways, because as you recall, in, in the 2021 campaign, we had very little access to him. We had access to all the other three candidates, uh, including Republican Kelly Loeffler. We had very little access to David Perdue. Um, I've been to four or five events with him so far in the last three or four weeks and had mm -hmm time to question him after each one of them, but now he's the challenger, right? So, so now he is the underdog, so he wants and craves that media attention. He wants reporters to, to cover every step of his campaign so that he can highlight his message. Um, he did not necessarily want that in the 2021 runoff, and so I don't think, I, you know, I wish it was because out of the goodness of his heart that he realized that it's good to have, be transparent and have more media attention. Um, but it's also out of the necessity of his new challenge. He's the underdog, and he's got to have media attention. And, and looking back at that 2020 campaign, um, I was a reporter in rural Georgia at the time, and that was the interesting thing, that, that, that the senator was giving access to those of us in rural Georgia. And, and, the, you know, one, and so when I was following him on the campaign trail, what I saw was – Senator Perdue struggling to make the argument to voters of, yes, Donald Trump is right. Donald Trump should have his legal challenges to the election. Yeah, there's problems with the, with the equipment. But then turning and saying, I still need you to show up and vote for me in January. I watched uh, – he, he did a, a campaign stop in Milledgeville, a campaign stop in Greensboro. 
that Greensboro stop, you could see he was struggling to make that argument. What's happening now is he's making clear as day. There are problems with the voting system. Kemp should have done this. Uh, Raffensperger should have done this. It's it's clear as day. He's not trying to walk a line now on what he's doing on the campaign trail now. All right. Um, Let's do this. Let's take our final break of the show. We still have a lot more to talk about when we return on Political Rewind. Alan Abramowitz, uh, Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, and U.S. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, have something in common this week. They both essentially condemned the Republican National Committee for its uh, resolution censuring uh, 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 two members, Adam Kinzinger and Lynn Cheney, for their participation in the January 6th mm-hmm. committee looking at the uh, insurrection. And in that resolution, calling this a legitimate uh, protest. Um, so let's talk about that a little. At first, in terms of Duncan, Duncan continues to uh, separate himself from the Trump wing of the Republican mm-hmm. Party, which is by far the dominant wing. Mm-hmm. So he remains in a minority, at least for the time being. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's pretty clear that um, that that uh, in Georgia and, and around most of the country, I think that that Republicans, the majority of Republican voters and, and, and most Republican elected officials um, have continued to, to align themselves with the former president. But it's very interesting that I think we're, we're seeing these indications, uh, not just here in Georgia, but around the country, that some um, establishment Republican figures uh, are, seem to be increasingly willing to stand up to the former president, uh, particularly on this whole issue of the stolen election and the insur- and the insurrection, um, and uh, in a, in addition to Mitch McConnell, who made a very strong statement actually on this, uh, and uh, we we also saw, of course, very significantly the former vice president speak out on this. Uh, that uh, former vice president Pence speaking at a gathering of the Federalist Society, very conservative uh, uh, organization in Florida, not too far from Mar-a-Lago. Um, spoke out more clearly than he has uh, previously uh, uh, about um, the effort to, uh, by the former president to get him to reject the electoral votes um, on January 6th and saying very clearly that he, that, that would have been wrong, that that, um, that would have been uh, uh, undermining American democracy, and he was not going to do that. Um, and so, so I think Pence is now pre- pretty clearly setting himself up uh, potentially to be one of the leaders in this sort of movement uh, of, of Republicans to uh, try, try to uh, come up with some someone uh, as an alternative uh, leader uh, of, of the party go, heading toward uh, 2024. Um, you know, uh, uh, Greg, Mitch McConnell did go to the stakeout microphones yesterday, and he said this. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent a peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next. That's what it was, objecting to the language in that RNC resolution, calling it, in fact, legitimate political discourse. By the way, Greg, I noticed 
in the video that Sen- Senator Jody, er- Jody Ernst from Iowa, a very, very conservative member of the Senate, was kind of standing next to McConnell in the frame of the video. I couldn't figure out whether she was trying to inch away from McConnell to get out of the frame or, or ahead of time recognize she was going to be a part of that. <laughs> Anyhow, more important, Greg, uh, this, is, uh, this is still the Trump Republican Party. It's still the Trump Republican Party, which is why we've heard nothing from a majority of Republican leaders in Georgia, um, nothing from uh, our congressional delegation in Georgia on on uh, re- rebuking the, the Republican National Convention's vote, uh, nothing from senior Republican leaders, nothing uh, from the Georgia GOP chair, David Schaefer, who's part of that vote, of course. Um, but it does show you that there is that movement of small and it's not just Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, it's also House Speaker David Ralston, who a few weeks ago um, went out of his way to make the point that, that what we saw on January 6th, what happened on January 6th, was, was a tragedy, was an atrocity, and it is nothing that we should stand for. Um, so there's, there are several other voices, but you know, when it comes to the majority of Republican um, lawmakers and the Republican sort of consensus among leadership, uh, we're not hearing any sort of talk about what happened in, in, on January 6th. Instead, um, it's more about what happened in November 2020 and, and a, a desire to, uh, to back up Trump's lies about election fraud. And I wanted, to return, the, I wanted to return the favor to, to Greg. I, I actually had that quote from Speaker Ralston where he said, quote, the people who went into the Capitol were criminals, and I'm disappointed at some in my party who can't accept the fact that it was completely despicable criminal behavior. So, yes, you've, you've heard the speaker and the lieutenant governor uh, push back on some of the January 6th narrative. And, um, and let's, not, for, I'm sorry. No, yeah, let's not forget that, that what happened on January 6th is directly connected to Trump's lie about the stolen election. It's the big lie leading to the insurrection. And David Perdue's entire campaign, his entire challenge to Brian Kemp is based on that it's based on the uh view that this election the 2020 election was stolen uh and you know that's what he's running on that's what jody heiss is running on for secretary of state um so the republican primaries for secretary of state and governor are going to be a a a sort of referendum uh on this claim uh whether the republican party wants to continue uh of uh, supporting uh, the former president and his, his claims about the stolen election and then, you know, the insurrection itself, uh, or whether they want, want to look forward and go in a different direction. All right. Um, I, I, I think, Greg, one of the things that it is really kind of remarkable about this, although the RNC tried to back away from this statement that this was a legitimate political discourse protest, they tried to. They said, well, we're not talking about the people who stormed the Capitol. We're talking about the people who were rounded up and with subpoenas being served upon them because they were part of these so-called alternate uh, uh, slates of Trump electors, and 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 by the way, we should point out that one of the people they pointed to was a woman, I guess an older woman in Michigan, who became part of a Trump slate. But right here in Georgia, of course, um, you've got the David Schaefer, the chair of mm-hmm. the Georgia Republican Party, getting subpoenaed because he led this slate of fake 
Trump electors. Yeah, it's, it's important for listeners to remember this was not a fringe group that was part of this fake slate. These were Republican Party leaders. It was Senator Burt Jones, who's now a candidate for lieutenant governor. And these were prominent party activists, the head of, of, of GOP districts, very well-known organizers throughout the state that all signed up and agreed to this. There's four who said no, they wanted out um, for various reasons. Uh, but there were four who were more than willing to take their place. So th- these were, this is not some extremist fringe. All right. Um, it's going to be interesting to see uh, the, the course that Jeff Duncan uh, especially uh, 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 takes in the weeks and months ahead. Is he, in fact, on the van- in the vanguard of a, uh, a new version of the Republican Party that rejects Trump? Or uh, is he going to continue to be a real outlier? I'm really looking forward to watching that unfold uh, in the future. Um, let's move on. Uh, Raul, the, uh, the state, I think it was in the Senate, if I'm wrong, please correct me, that uh, they approved a resolution to erect a statue of Clarence Thomas <laughs> on the Capitol grounds. Um, you know, Clarence Thomas's personal story is pretty remarkable. He grew up in poverty and pinpoint Georgia, um, went on to Yale Law School. I mean, the trajectory of his career has been commendable in so many ways. Uh, The problem for Democrats, mostly Democrats, is that his service, uh, certainly on the Supreme Court, but beyond just the court, the way in which he has denigrated, minimized civil rights, uh, has, uh, in some people's eyes, uh, lessened uh, his uh, uh, the 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 uh, uh, feeling that you ought to put a statue up to him, Raul. Yeah. So uh, this debate was both in committee and then on on the Senate floor this week. They brought up his position on affirmative action and his rulings on affirmative action. They talked they talked about abortion. Um, Republicans stuck with his story, you know, his 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 poverty to the Supreme Court story and how few Georgians have served on the court, uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court. And Democrats, you know, talked about his rulings, uh, talked about, uh, they also brought up Anita Hill and what happened in that case. They also brought up the political activism of Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny. They brought that up, too, during the debate. And then the final thing that Democrats brought up was this idea of we're putting up a statue of someone who is still actually serving in office. So those were the kind of the issues that, that Democrats brought up and, and passionately brought up, especially about affirmative action and, and how the African-American community feels toward Clarence Thomas. Um, you know, Alan, I, I'm glad that uh, Raul mentioned uh, Thomas's wife, Ginny. I never got a chance on this show to point out the remarkable profile that Jane Mayer uh, filed in The New Yorker of her life and career. Her attachment to many right-wing white supremacist organizations married to an African-American man is astonishing, and certainly Mayor questions what kind of breakfast table conversations (laughs) Clarence Thomas and Ginny must have when they're looking at issues uh, that are before the court. Well, that's that's part of the problem here is that... um, she has been involved with organizations that are sponsoring cases that have come before the court. Um, so here you have a Supreme Court justice, um, you know, whose wife is uh, part of uh, various, attached to various groups and organizations 
that, that are bringing cases that he is going to have to being asked to vote on. And in no, in no instance, I think, has he ever recused himself from from a case of, of that sort. So so there's a potential conflict of interest issue there as, as on top of, of, of everything else. But, you know, I mean, Clarence Thomas has been consistently one of the most conservative members of the court since he was appointed. And he has, con, you know, consistently ruled uh, against uh, uh, almost every you know, progressive cause you can think of, including including affirmative action. You know, and, and it should be remembered that he was appointed to Thurgood Marshall's seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think that's something that continues to irritate um, a, a lot of uh, civil rights leaders and a, a lot of progressives and Democrats. Uh, two more quick things to point out about the debate. Senator Nikki Merritt called him a hypocrite and a traitor, using some of the harshest language, uh, most critical language I've heard of the state Senate in a while. And secondly, Senator Nan Orrock, a Democrat from Decatur, briefly pushed an amendment to put Jenny Thomas as part of the statute. It was kind of cheeky, uh, kind of ribbing. Uh, she ended up withdrawing it, but it, but it was meant to kind of signal that point that, hey, uh, you know, his, mm -hmm. his wife also has some big question marks surrounding her advocacy. Um, do we have any reason to think that this won't go forward in the uh, House? Raul, have you been following what the House's uh, take on this is? Uh, or Greg, Raul? Uh, the only... I, I don't see any reason for it not to move forward um, in the House. But I have heard discussion, including from the speaker, of does the legislature need a bigger discussion about all the statues that are on the ground currently, and then the statues that people want to still put up? There is a Zell Miller statue in the works. You and I both know there's probably going to be a Johnny Isaacson statue in the works. You've got the Clarence Thomas statue. There's going to there, at some point, I believe, a discussion on what statues are on the ground and how should future statues be handled uh, at the state capitol grounds. Interesting. You're right. That's going to be a fascinating uh, story to watch. Um, we are completely out of time for today's show, uh, and uh, I appreciate the conversation that we've had today. Um, we, uh, I wanted to get to the, to the latest on the Buckhead City movement. We'll have to defer that to tomorrow. The Atlanta Public Schools Board of Education has now made a really strong, strong statement condemning any effort to separate Buckhead from the rest of the city of Atlanta. But we'll get to that on tomorrow's show. We're also going to talk about a colleague of Alan Abramowitz, Deborah Lipstadt, who continues to struggle to get an appointment uh, to be the overseer of anti-Semitism for the uh, uh, Biden administration. All that and more on tomorrow's show. In the meantime, Alan Abramowitz, Raul Bali, Greg Blustein, thank you for a terrific show today. Thank you, Jesse Neiswanger, Sam Bermistaz, Natalie Mendenhall, for your behind-the-scenes work today. We're out of time. Back tomorrow. Please take care. Stay healthy. Masks still do work, even though mask mandates are dropping. Wear one when you can and get a booster shot. See you all, everybody. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.